it's time for some podcast reviews. This review is from Aquins. Truly inspiring and uplifting women's podcast. Listening to each episode makes you feel empowered. Thank you for empowering women. Thank you so much, Aquins. You're such an idiot. You should know better. You're not good enough. Who do you think you are? No, these are not words told to me by my arch enemy, but the words told to me by my wonderful negative voice. And well, I am assuming I'm not the only person who has this kind of self-dialogue that plays on repeat like a broken record. I think many of us are tuned into the same radio station. And let's be honest, the DJ is just kind of mean. And now, while we're all social distancing, we have more time to listen. The volume is on max. In fact, it's playing in surround sound. Dolby surround sound. The negative loop just keeps on playing and playing and you can't change the freaking channel. Yep, it's stuck on Beat Yourself Up FM. So today I want to bring on an expert and I figured a professor of educational psychology is just the right person. But she's not only a woman who has spent years researching and understanding self-compassion. She herself had to practice what she preached after her son was diagnosed with autism in 2007. Facing the most challenging time in her life, she found herself using her own self-compassion practices to steer clear of anger and self-pity in times of stress and despair that would inevitably come for her. And so she is here today to teach us the tactics and strategies we too can use, especially in this time of hardship. So guys, please help me in welcoming the author of Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, a speaker, expert, and co-developer of the Mindful Self-Compassion program taught by thousands of teachers worldwide. So guys, if you want to change that station that is airing the negative playlist, well, she is the battery to your remote controls. A true pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, the ever-compassionate Kristen Neff. Welcome to the show, girl. Um, I came across in my research of you a quote that you said, and this is exactly where I want to start because it was so powerful. Self-compassion has been shown to be one of the most powerful sources of strength, coping and resilience we are going uh, we have going for us. When the going gets tough, the tough get self-compassionate. So I love that quote so much. Um, but what I want to talk about is really starting with what's the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion and why now have we, we as in you with all your research, has discovered that actually self-compassion is the key. Right. So um, self-esteem is basically a positive judgment of self-worth. You know, it's like summing yourself up and deciding whether or not you're a good, worthy person or you're a bad, unworthy person, right? Um, and self-esteem often comes from social comparison, right? So in other words, we have, we have to be special and above average to have high self-esteem. It's not okay to be average. In fact, we, we feel insulted if someone tells us we're average. And so what that means is, well, first of all, it's logically impossible for us all to be above average at the same time. But what that means is we're constantly comparing ourselves with others. There's, there's kind of a hidden bias to try to see ourselves as better than others and to subtly put others down. You know, we see someone walk in the room. Is he smarter than me? Is she prettier than me? You know, is he more successful than me? And that, that social comparison, um, it, it creates a distance between ourselves and others. And it can lead to things like, for instance, bullying. Why do, why do kids start to bully in early adolescence? 
to get higher self-esteem, right? When, when you're a young teenager, you don't have a lot to go on. So maybe if I pick on that weird nerdy kid and have the kids look up to me for being the strong, cool kid, maybe I'll feel good about myself, right? Um, and then in adulthood, it takes different forms. So a prejudice, for instance. I mean, prejudice is complicated. It's not just about self-esteem. Part of it's just plain power. But at least part of it is the fact that we like to feel that our ethnic group, our gender group, our political group, our religious group is better than others so that we can feel good about ourselves. So that need to feel better than others, that's a part of self-esteem, is not very healthy. Um, the other thing that's really not that healthy about self-esteem is that it tends to be contingent. In other words, it depends mm. on success. It depends on whether I'm a, as attractive as I want to be. And actually, for a woman, that's the number one domain in which we invest our self-esteem, attractiveness, right? So it has the biggest impact on our self-esteem. Um, other things like success, business, or athletics, if that's important to you. Um, and also how popular we are. Right. A lot of our sense of self-worth comes from what other people think of us. And by the way, it's not what your mom or your best friends think of you. They don't count. You take them for granted. It's what other people, like other kids at school, other people at work, other, other, you know, people on, in the Facebook social media milieu who give us likes. And the bad thing about that is um, we don't know them, what they really think of us, and they don't know us, who we really are. So, in other words, the sources of our self-esteem are often very poor, and they are, they're often problematic. Now, there's nothing wrong with having high self-esteem, and, and it's much better to think well of yourself than to hate yourself. The problem is, you know, how do we get that self-esteem? And so, usually, the sources aren't that healthy. That's where self-compassion comes in. So, self-compassion is not a judgment or an evaluation of being a good or a bad person, of being a worthy or an unworthy person. Self-compassion is simply being kind to ourselves because we hurt like all human beings hurt, right? We're imperfect human beings. We've got good sides. We have bad sides. We have good days. We have bad days. Um, and because we're human beings who struggle, we give ourselves the same type of compassion that we would show to any human being who is struggling, right? So it's not about judgments or evaluation. We just kind of embrace this whole mess. <laughs> we don't try not to be a mess. We embrace this whole mess with kindness and support and kind of unconditional uh, care and worthiness. And that's why we have self-compassion. So just to say self-compassion does give you self-esteem. If you're, if you're, if you're self-compassionate, you're going to have higher self-esteem than if you slam yourself with self-criticism and shame all the time. Mm -hmm. The source of self-worth is not conditional, right? I don't, it's not like it's always there, especially when I fail. I mean, self-esteem is a fair-weather friend, right? It's there for you in the good times. It's, it deserts you in the bad times. Self-compassion is there precisely when you fail, you make a mistake, something really difficult happens in your life, like this pandemic, right? This is precisely when self-compassion steps in to support us when times are bad. Um, and so not only is it not contingent, it's not comparative. You don't have to be better than anyone else to have self-compassion. You just have to be a flawed, imperfect human being like everyone else. Well, I could do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you might say that self-compassion is a healthy source of self-worth. But again, it's not just feelings of worthiness. It's really um, actively supporting ourselves, asking ourselves, what, what do I need in this moment to care for myself? And so self-compassion is concerned with 
the alleviation of our own suffering in the same way that we might naturally be concerned with alleviation of our those we care about their suffering. Wow, that's so amazing because here's the thing. I've done many shows, um, God, over 100 now, and I'm always talking about self-esteem. I'm always talking about that I had low self-esteem when I was a kid. I was bullied as a kid. I was teased as a kid. And how have I built up my self-esteem? And it's never occurred to me with self-compassion on the, the difference and how fragile self-esteem is, whether, I love what you said, right? You can either succeed or fail and self-compassion will always be there. But self-esteem, when you fail, you just feel crappy about yourself. That's right, yeah. That's right. So, so thank you for breaking those up. Um, that's really clear. Now I want to talk about how do we develop self-compassion and what are the traps in going into this? Because I'm always like, okay, what, what serves me? How do I improve? Okay, self-compassion, amazing. But then there's also going to be traps in the self-compassion game. On So for instance, an example is how do you differentiate between pity and self-compassion? Um, I think you even said you don't want to suppress, but you also don't want to exaggerate. So, yeah, um, yeah. So, so talk to me about that and how we navigate that. Yeah, and, and so they aren't really traps of self-compassion. What it is is there are things that some people might confuse with self-compassion, and they may think they're being self-compassionate when they really aren't. And in fact, these are, these, um, there are strong cultural myths about self-compassion. Our society doesn't teach us to be self-compassionate, partly because we're afraid all these bad things are going to happen. Um, all of them, are, not only are they untrue, research shows the exact opposite is true. Tell me but a couple of myths. Give me, can, can you give me so some examples? Afraid, people are afraid it's going to be self-pity. People are afraid um, it's going to be selfish. People are afraid it's going to lead to complacency or laziness, undermine your motivation, um, or self-indulgence. So these myths come up again and again, and we, we really think, oh, if I'm self-compassionate, these bad things are going to happen. But that's because it's not really self-compassion. There are other things that maybe look like self-compassion, but that's not what we're talking about. Um, so let's start with self-pity, right? So self-pity self -pity is not healthy. But what is self-pity? Self-pity is woe is me, poor me. It's very isolating. So the, the way I define self-compassion is it's three main components. The first is mindfulness. We're kind of aware of our struggles in a kind of balanced way, like you said. We don't avoid or suppress it. We don't run away with it. There's some perspective, some wisdom there. Um, uh, kindness, which I talked about, but also common humanity. This is actually what differentiates compassion from pity. So compassion in the Latin means to suffer with. There's an inherent connectedness. If, if, I, if I have compassion for you, you're going to enjoy that experience because I'm feeling connected to you in your struggle. If I pity you, you're not going to want me to pity you because I'll be looking down on you. I'll be like putting myself above you. And it's the same thing with self-compassion, right? So self-pity is woe is me. Self-compassion is, hey, life's difficult for everyone. Everyone's imperfect. It's not just me. In fact, quite the opposite. I can feel connected to others in my struggles, you know, whether it's the pandemic. I mean, this is one instance where we don't fall into the illusion of thinking it's just me because we can't, like literally <laughs> the whole entire world. But typically we do. Like typically it's not rational, but we tend to think, you know, it's just me who has cancer or, or it's just me who was dumped by our boyfriend or it's just me who said that thing at the party, right? We forget that, wait a second, this humans do this all the time. Um, and so with self-compassion, we remember our humanity, we remember our connectedness to others as we relate to our own pain. 
and that gives us a buffer. And it also helps us feel um, empowered because when we feel all alone, we feel weak, we feel frightened, right? We feel like separated from others. But when you remember, hey, this is part of being human, like, even this mm -hmm. pandemic, right? It's it's horrible, but you know, and and sure, it's, it's incredibly difficult. But this isn't unusual in human history, right? Pandemics mm -hmm. happen. And so if we go too far down the line and this isn't supposed to be happening, you know, why is this happening? This isn't supposed to be happening. It's like, well, you know, who said it's not supposed to be happening? You know, these things happen. So and what that does is when we accept that it's part of the human experience is instead of fighting against it and railing against it and saying this should not be happening. And when we say this should not be happening, it's like we're banging our head against the wall. You know, not only does it hurt. We feel extra frustration because we think it's not supposed to be happening. Mm -hmm. But when we remember, well, this is this is part of the human experience. And then, so what can I do to help myself? What can I do to help others? How can I work with it as opposed to just, you know, railing against it, which actually usually doesn't help very much. Yeah, that's so true. And there's something that you said, and I actually want to link that to something you said at the beginning, which is don't compare yourself. So one thing that I know that um, is instinctual that um, a lot of my friends and people that I know in the mindset space do is they compare themselves to make the situation better. So yeah. for instance, they're like, well, yes, I may have lost my job, but at least I'm not starving like other people in the world. Like they say it as a way to empower themselves to make them feel better. But you actually yeah. said at the beginning that comparing yourself can be dangerous so talk to me about that yeah and so it's it's both right so on the one hand it is useful to remember that some people have it worse off that's just wisdom that's perspective right and so we need that perspective so you know for instance i'm suffering because the pandemic like everyone but yet you know i'm so grateful i have a job and i have a home and some many people have it so much worse and that's important that we be grateful for what we have the problem, though, is if we use that gratitude or that, you know, kind of perspective as a way of suppressing our own pain, mm -hmm. anytime we suppress our own pain and we avoid it, it actually makes them more intense, right? And, and so well, when we accept our negative emotions, when we accept the fact that it's difficult, it actually makes it less intense. That's just the way the human brain works. And so if you use... Even gratitude practice as a way to suppress your negative emotions is actually not going to work because you're suppressing them and eventually they'll just come out that much stronger. And so both are true. And from my point of view and from the point of view of compassion, any moment of suffering is worthy of a compassionate response. It's not like you've got to suffer a certain amount in order to, be, to earn compassion. You know, if you stub your toe, for instance, tiny little moment of suffering, but think about it. If you stub your toe and get really reactive and get really angry, you might kick your cat or kick your child. So even even that moment you say, oh, you know, you know, just that that slight kindness, even for something as insignificant as stubbing your toe, will put you in the state of mind to where you aren't so reactive and actually you might be able to, you know, be more productive in that moment. So all all suffering is worthy of compassion, large or small. But, you know, all suffering is not the same. It's also important that we acknowledge that as well. Right, that our reactions are not the same. So if you stub your toe versus you lose your job, understanding yeah. that the reaction isn't going to be the same. And you don't want to elevate your stubbing the toe to be reactionary like the world is crumbling. Right, yeah. And so so much of it is how we react to what's happening, right? So, so again, sometimes we overreact. Sometimes we underreact, right? 
so really there are three steps of self-compassion, which, which correspond to the three components. First, we need to be mindful of what's happening. We have to be aware that it hurts, you know, validate it, acknowledge it. And again, it doesn't matter if it's big or small. Any moment of suffering is here, right? So acknowledge that this hurts, whatever it is. And then um, remember that this is part of life. Right, so so it's not just you. We want to we want to um, de-emphasize that sense of separate self. So often our ego runs with the storyline of how horrible it is, and when our ego runs amok, you know, then things get a lot worse. So and ironically, even though it's called self-compassion, it actually lessens the sense of separate self. It just frames everything as well. This is part of the human experience, and as we do that, there is some wisdom in seeing that while well, some people have it harder. And I do. It doesn't mean that my pain doesn't matter. But yes, you know, it's, it's wise to remember that we have a lot to be grateful for. And then come bringing in the kindness, right? So then we bring in warmth and support and care, um, just like we would for a friend we cared about or a child or a loved one. And when we do that, when we're kind to ourselves and we meet our emotional needs, when we meet our physical and psychological needs, um, then we have a lot more resources to give to others. And that's why some people think self-compassion is selfish. It absolutely is not selfish. Because if you give and you give and you give and you beat yourself up, you're going to burn out. And you're going to have nothing left to give others. Right? But I'm not, not, I'm not just talking about if I do yoga and I eat well. I mean, self-care is important. But in the moment, like so when you're caring for someone who's struggling, if you're hurting as because you're caring for them, like you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling exhausted. I mean, a lot of parents right now, right? The kids are home, driving them batty, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and so acknowledging the difficulty of that and saying, this is really hard. I feel so overwhelmed. I feel, you know, I don't have time to work. This is really hard. And kind of being kind to yourself. I often recommend like physical touch as a way of supporting yourself. Um, any any words you might say to a friend, hey, you know, hang in there, I've got your back, that type of thing. The more you do that, um, not only the more resources will you have to care for your kids, but when you are with your kids, or when you're with your spouse, or when you're with your elderly parent, whoever you're caring for, they're interacting with someone who's calm and kind on the inside, right? As opposed to someone who's stressed and full of anger on the inside. We read each other's emotions constantly. Mm -hmm. You know, our, our brains are designed to do that. We have mirror neurons whose whole function it is to feel what other people are feeling. So what we cultivate internally is what we present to the world. It's what everyone else interacts with. So th the idea that somehow self-compassion is selfish and other compassion is not selfish doesn't make sense because mm -hmm. self and other, we're, we're constantly in interaction. We're, we're, we're um, my mind state impacts your mind state. Your mind state impacts my mind state. So the more peace and love and connection and warmth I can cultivate internally, you know, that I bring that out into the world with me. God, that was so amazing. Oh my God, that, I loved how you just broke that down. There's so much I wanna talk about. And um, so one thing that you mentioned actually is that it being selfish, right? But what's interesting is if I was to give, if I was to be compassionate to somebody else, or let's say I wasn't compassionate to somebody else, people were like, oh my God, what a bitch. Like she wasn't compassionate to her. But yet if I'm giving it to myself, it is perceived as being selfish, which by the way, the word selfish for me, I don't see it as a negative. I think it's, we have 
um, wrapped negativity around that word. But like you said, and I know it's now become cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. Put your freaking oxygen mask on yourself first before you try and save others, right? Like it's so true. And yet, if we are trying to take care of ourselves first by showing self-compassion, it's perceived as selfish. That's crazy to me. Um, well, we do need balance. I mean, that's the whole thing. So compassion, self-compassion isn't at the expense of other compassion. Right. right? So it's always like, what's the right balance, you know? And that's going to change from moment to moment. There, there are times as a parent when you have to, you know, give 95% of your attention and energy to your child. There are also times as a parent when you need to give 95% of your attention and energy to yourself, right? Or sometimes it's 50-50. And so that's why we also need wisdom. We need, we need wisdom to be able to see you know, what, what are the needs in this situation and to make a wise choice. Um, but if somehow we exclude ourselves because we think it's selfish or we think it's self-pity, or um, actually we haven't even talked about this one, if we think it's going to um, demotivate ourselves, which is totally untrue, um, then we aren't being wise and then, uh, then we aren't going to be able to help others as much as we would otherwise. Where does that thinking come from? Um, I think there's... A, a few reasons. I think there are some actual physiological reasons for why we tend to be harder on ourselves than those we care about. Um, so what happens is when we're threatened, we go into the fight, flight, or freeze response, right? That's the, we know that's our oldest. That's like the reptile, reptilian brain. It's our oldest, most easily triggered nervous system reaction. And the system is great for when a lion's chasing you, but what happens when you're threatened because you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, or you failed your exam, or you know something happened? The threat is actually ourself. The threat is to our ego, our self-concept. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we turn the fight, flight, or freeze response inward, and we attack ourselves, thinking that somehow if we attack ourselves, we'll be able to control the situation and be safe, or be able to change ourselves and be safe. Or, you know, we hide in shame, thinking that we hide in shame, then we'll be safe from others, right? Um, and or we freeze in rumination, again, thinking we're going to be safe. And so because of this desire for safety, we more quickly and easily do fight, flight, or freeze with ourselves than if you fail or make a mistake, I'm not so threatened by it. Interesting. Space to tap into my other safety system, which is the tend and befriend system, right? That they call it the mammalian care system. There's a lot of different names, but that's when we feel safe by being like closeness, by um, you know physical touch, by caring for others, having them care for us, bonding, social bonding. You know, this is something that mammals have that reptiles don't, but it's not as quickly and easily triggered. Takes a little more time takes a little more space actually. We aren't always so compassionate to our nearest and dearest, like our partners or our kids, because they're so close, we're, like, we're fused with them. And when they, when they fail or something happens to them, we feel threatened. And that's why sometimes we're more reactive with them. Whereas a good friend, you aren't so threatened, right? So some of it is the level of threat. And then a lot of it is just social conditioning. You know, we are raised, as you say, to be compassionate to others, but, you know, kind of the Puritan ethic, at least in, in Western cultures, teaches us that we're supposed to be self-critical. We're supposed to be hard on ourselves. You know, we don't want to spoil ourselves or be selfish. And so we get a lot of unhealthy cultural messages that also stand in the way, I believe. Yeah. Ooh, 
you're just dropping bombs here, girl. Um, <laughs> this is so amazing. Um, okay, now where I want to go, you've done an amazing job of explaining self-compassion, breaking it down, how it can hurt us, how it can help us. And the one thing is, um, as you were talking earlier, you put your hands on your chest and your heart. And I've heard you talk about touching yourself as a way of letting uh, of you, for you to be self-compassionate. Talk to me about that and then the studies behind it. Because here's the thing, I used to think it was woo-woo. I used to think it was totally woo-woo and like, I just felt silly. You know, like one time I tried it when I was stressed and I was like, it's okay, Lisa. And I'm like, straight and I'm like, this feels freaking weird. But when I understand why I can lean into it so much. So if you can enlighten me on that, that'd be awesome. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with hires as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is a negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. Yeah. So again, it just goes back to the nervous system and basic physiology. So like I said, the, the, the mammalian care system for, for mammals, the way we signal care is through touch, right? And so for all, all animals, all mammals, they signal care through touch. Think of the you know, a mother cat cuddling with their kittens or, you know, dogs through touch. The humans as well, right? 
So um, for the first two years of life, humans don't have language. And so the way parents and children communicate care and safety and warmth is through touch. And so our bodies are exquisitely designed to respond to touch as a signal of care. And so what happens, we put our hands on our heart or our stomach or face, if you wash your hands or, you know, <laughs> any touch, um, it actually calms down our physiology, right? It reduces our cortisol levels. Um, we feel relaxed. Um, we, it, we don't have data connecting these dots, but it's likely reduces oxytocin and opiates, which are associated with this parasympathetic nervous system reaction. It increases heart rate variability. And so basically what's happening is you're communicating to your body it's safe and care is present. And, and the reason it's so useful is because um, sometimes just mentally we can't go there. You know, we're, we're too full of the storyline of how bad we are or how bad the situation is. And so calming down our physiology can actually help. It helps um, change our physiology so we're less activated with cortisol, et cetera, um, it also um, yeah, works kind of at almost at a, a pre-conscious level. It's not working with fear, it's kind of working at the bodily level, which helps. And that combined with things like understanding, um, warm tone of voice, uh, caring message, it, it really strengthens it. And we often tell people to kind of drop out of their head into their body. <laughs> because our head is where the storyline is and where we go off into the just, you know, the catastrophe and and you just off to the races. But our bodies are right here and right now, you know, so our bodies are present, they're grounded, they kind of help stabilize us. And so um, we might tell people if they're really upset about something, just feel your feet on the floor. So, so feeling your feet on the floor, grounding yourself in your body. And of course, with touch, it also helps remind us of our physical presence, which also helps ground and stabilize us. And so that's why in, in many ways, it's, um, it is touchy-feely on purpose, but it really, really works. But, you know, if you, some people, if it really doesn't work for some people, there's no reason you have to use it. It's just very, it's just useful. Yeah, it seems so obvious when you say it, girl. But, like, when you, uh, when I heard you say in the first two years, a child can't talk, it can't understand. So all it has is touch and scent. I was like, oh, my God, of course. Like, that makes so much sense. And so it really did fit like a puzzle piece when you said that. Um, of why it makes a difference. So I'm going to go a little um, tactical and ask you a couple of questions here on just like, are you better off trying to get a cuddle or touch from somebody else? Or does it have to be yourself? And then the reason why I ask is I think of like massages and when you're tickling, like you can't really tickle yourself. And when you give your massage, you don't feel as relaxed. So in my head, I'm just going, okay, is that the optimal way of doing it? Or should I be getting other people or hugging a teddy or something like that? Right. I think it really just depends on what works, right? What's works and, and what's available in the moment. Right. So it's not like self-touch is more effective than a, a loving hug from someone you care about. I mean, that's very effective. Um, if hugging a teddy works for you, then that's good as well. Or, or um, you know, I got, my friend, she, she has four dogs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, you know, that's her oxytocin rush. So I don't think it really matters so much. Um, the reason I, the self-touch is useful, though, is because we do know it's from ourselves. So in other words... Um, I'm not, let's say I have get a hug from our, my friend, and maybe I know my friend loves me, and, and that's very, very important. But if my friend loves me, but I don't love myself, and I think, oh, of course my friend thinks of that, 
I mean, she's, she's my friend, but it's not really true. So we may undermine the messages of support we get from others and acceptance. Um, and also our friends may not always be there. I mean, in the middle of the night at three in the morning, when we wake up and our stories, our heads are full of the storyline, you know, it's, sometimes it's only us who's there in that moment. And again, it's not to replace other people. Of course, we need other people, but we don't want to be wholly dependent on other people. Mm. So we really need to include ourselves in the picture. Yeah, that's so true. Um, another tip that I've heard you say is to refer to yourself when talking about your emotions in the second person. Uh, it's right. I mean, it, it, again, it depends what works. Each individual is different. But it can be really effective because when you say you or, or, or um, I sometimes use terms of endearment for myself because I'm a, I'm a mother and I always call my son darling and sweetheart. So I'll say darling and sweetheart to myself. For some people, that's going to make them gag. You know, and if that's, if that's your reaction, don't do it. But for some people for whom terms of endearment are very natural and feel warm and supportive, they can be really effective. Uh, what happens when you say you is... First of all, um, you've got some distance. So when it's, I I am feeling so upset, it's like we're, it's easier to be lost in the feelings of being upset. Whereas when you say, wow, you f you're really feeling upset, darling. It's like immediately you've got some perspective. You're like stepping outside of yourself so you aren't so fused with the difficult emotions, right? And also we're just more, we're more familiar with giving compassion to someone else and most of us many of us are compassion experts just giving it to someone else so we know what to say to our friend you know we know what to, how to address our friend we know the tone of voice to use we know the types of supportive kind warm things to say or let's say some people had a very loving caring grandparent then they might think of well what would grandma say to me right now you know mm. it's still coming from oneself for some people it helps to hear it from another person, like a third person, like a grandparent or a spiritual teacher. I mean, for people who are really religious, for instance, you know, they might think, mm -hmm. what would Jesus say? I mean, that's a, I, I, that's a type of self-compassion, right, from my point of view. So um, I think it's really whatever works for you. I love that. And what I love is in listening to you and all your research and your tips, it's like, there is a list of things that people typically say and then there's things that you have brought to the table that it just didn't even occur to me, right? So like I didn't even think about ever referring or thinking about it in a second person. So when I heard you say it, I was like, but why? And then you break it down. I'm like, oh my God, that's freaking genius. Now look, I, I love getting tips. I love hearing them, understanding them and then trying them. And like you said, once you try them, you have to assess if it actually works for you or not. But you say you aren't used to referring to yourself in the, in the second person, but what about when you fail? I mean, we often say, oh, you idiot, right? So we don't even, we're very used to doing it in that context. That's interesting. So we're just more, we're more used to that voice. So we're just kind of changing that. And that's what's so fascinating, right, is that we become so, um, it's just habitual. Like, it's so common yeah. for us to be thinking like that. Like, it literally never even dawned on me. You're 100% right. I love that you pointed that out. That's amazing. Um, one thing that I always find fascinating is, like, the, 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 the loop, the cycle that you go in. So you don't have self-compassion. How do you not beat yourself up about not having self-compassion, right? And then... Um, because yeah. in that beating yourself up, I think it pushes you out of being able to be self-compassionate. 
Yeah, well, I think it does really help to remember that self-criticism comes from the desire to be safe. I mean, that's why we do it, right? There's some part of us that feels threatened. We feel insecure about something. We really think that by being hard on ourselves, that will help ourselves, right? We kind of it's kind of misdirected care, you might say. Um, maybe our history is we're, we're criticized by our parents, and so if we criticize ourselves first, we could save ourselves the pain of being criticized by our parents, or being criticized by society, or losing our job, or whatever the thing is we're afraid of. And so I think once you really understand that the reason we're so hard on ourselves comes from the desire to be safe then we can kind of have compassion for inner criticism as well, you know, and then, and then we can say, okay, if I just want to be safe, well, it's probably a more effective way to be safe. And that's by caring for myself. Cause that's also a way to stay safe, but it uh, doesn't have all the negative side effects like anxiety and shame and, you know, activating your nervous system so much that you can't think straight, uh, depression. I mean, shame and depression are not exactly the most helpful mind states for changing yourself. Right. But love, support, encouragement, they're much more effective for making the changes you need. And the number one block to self-compassion is people really think that self-criticism is an effective motivator of change, right? People really believe that they need to be hard on themselves to make the changes they need to be safe and happy, (laughs) right? And what they don't realize is that it, it kind of works. It's kind of like that 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 coal pipe, that coal powered uh, steam engine that gets you up the hill, but it spits out so much smoke <laughs> that it causes a lot of problems, right? Um, so, and what the problems it causes is it undermines your self confidence if you criticize yourself a lot. Confidence is very a very important factor in being able to reach your goals. Um, it makes you afraid of failure. Also, which inhibits your motivation, it leads to things like procrastination because you don't want to beat yourself up if you fail. Um, you can just give up eventually because you, you stop believing in yourself. Uh, and it also causes performance anxiety, which mm-hmm. undermines your ability to do your best. So compassionate motivation, it's like you don't motivate yourself because you're afraid you'll be inadequate if you don't reach your goals. You motivate yourself because you love yourself and you want to reach your goals because you care. So it's just as motivating, but um, you're not afraid of failure because, well, if you fail, then you can say, oh, what can I learn from this failure? So at least a kind of a growth mindset, um, less performance anxiety, a less fear of failure. And when you do fail, you're more likely to pick yourself up and try again. So it's actually a much healthier and more sustainable form of motivation than self-criticism. But people don't know that because they've never tried it. <laughs> that is so freaking strong. And the reason why that resonated with me so much is I talk a lot about, um, so as we were building Quest, um, I was just grinding. I was the negative voice. Come on, Lisa, you know, stop being lazy. Get your ass up. You failed. All right. What have you got? Right? Like that would be my um, internal dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I do believe it was part of what got me my success because when I fell, I gave myself such a hard time, like get up, get up. Like, and I wasn't talking nicely to myself, um, yeah. but it forced me to get up. It forced me to keep going, but I didn't feel good about myself at all. And I ended up crashing and burning and my health at the height of my success, my health completely plummeted. So I've really been struggling with what advice do I give to people when it comes to that? Because I really did believe that it was part of my success. Yeah. So, well, so a lot of people get through law school and med school and they do achieve a self-criticism. Again, it does get you up the hill. 
but it, it spits out so much black smoke that it actually is unhealthy. And so what you can do is, you know, if you think about how you might motivate a child. So for instance, you know, my, my son Rowan, he, he had been homeschooled and my family sent him to public school. The very first test he took, world geography, he failed, you know, flat out F. And I could have tried to motivate him with, you know, that approach, this up, the critical approach, which would be like, oh, come on, Rowan, get yourself together. You, you're a failure. You know, that that's not good enough. You do better. It's like, what would that have done to him? He probably would have like, ah, maybe he would have studied, but he probably would have, you know, had so much anxiety, would have failed this test, maybe would have dropped out of world geography. So what I did, the first thing I did was I gave him a hug. And I said, hey, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, man, that hurts to fail. Hey, it's okay. It happens to everyone. So I made him know that even though he failed this world geography test, I still loved him. But did I leave it there? You know, would that would I be a compassionate parent if I just left it there? <laughs> yeah. I don't want, you know, I don't want him to fail out of his classes. So, you know, what did I do? I called his teachers. I figured out what was going on with the study routine. We helped him figure out how to study better. And now he's doing much better. And so, in other words, the motivation comes from care, right? Mm -hmm. So when we care about ourselves, we want to reach our goals. And, and so love is a very powerful motivating force. If we think of the love parents have for their children, we see the power of love as a motivator. You know, parents will do anything for their children. They'll give up their lives for their children. And so actually we start to develop that sense of commitment to ourselves. And it can be a very powerful motivator. And like I said, it, what, what it really does is it enables us to look at our failures much more um, openly. And we learn a lot more from our failures. And that also helps us succeed. Man, the one thing I love that you talk about a lot that I've noticed is perspective. Because the perspective is, yeah, I definitely would have thought of somebody as being a bad mom if they were just like mean to their kids about like, you failure, get your ass up, you, you know, what are you made of? Clearly nothing, you know, like, I'd be like, man, that's, a, that's just like a mean parent. But yeah. that's absolutely the voice that I used to talk to myself. So I love that reframing because it really did bother me that that got me to partly to my success and I, I don't want to advise it. And so you've just given me amazing words on how to get to that same result, but using kind um, and compassion towards it. And by the way, sometimes, you know, the kindness has to be a little fierce. I call it like mama bear self-compassion, right? So, so there's like mama, like, the, oh, it's okay, sweetheart, the soothing, which is sometimes needed, that kind of accepting ourselves as we are. And sometimes it's like, hey, this isn't working out. You need to leave this relationship. But it's not because you're bad. It's because I care about you. <laughs> you need to leave the relationship now. It can be like really firm or saying no, drawing boundaries. So it's not it's not always soft, this voice. It can be very fierce and protective. But the goal, the aim is always um, our health and well-being. You know, and, and that's uh, that's what makes it compassion, even though the form it takes actually may look quite different depending on the circumstance. Yeah. Um, I've heard you say that um, people from abusive um, families are typically way less compassionate, uh, self-compassionate. Um, why is that? That was shocking to me. Yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense because if, you know, the system that was supposed to make us feel safe or, you know, and cared for, which is our parents, our attachment system, if it didn't make us feel safe, it made us feel unsafe, then actually the experience of compassion itself can be scary, right? Because if, I, if I'm kind to myself, it might remind myself of my parents who weren't kind to me and it actually made me make me feel scared, right? 
And so um, we, we call that backdraft. It's like people their whole lives, they've had to shut down the, the doors of their heart just to survive. And then they start opening up the doors of their heart. It's like the love rushes in and the pain rushes out. And it's kind of like a fire, you know, house on fire. If you float, throw open the doors of a house, the air rushes in, the flames rush out. That can happen. Um, it's actually a good sign. It's not a bad sign. It means the healing process has begun. So we can actually reparent ourselves in a way. Some people call self-compassion a, a type of reparenting ourselves. So we give ourselves what we need. You know, we, we meet our own needs consistently. We give ourselves the unconditional love that maybe we didn't get as children. And that actually helps us heal as adults. And it's a really a useful way to actually heal from past abuse. So it's not like, um, the, the you know, it's set in stone and we can never change. We absolutely can change. Again, we may need to go more slowly and it really helps to have some therapy or professional help on the journey. Yeah, understanding that really, I think, does help. Because um, I, I didn't actually get the whole backdraft thing. And when you explained it, I was like, oh, God, yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, and I love that you actually ended it on, but it actually is a good thing. So even, you know, opening your heart up, even if there's a backdraft, is, is the right way to go. It's the right way. But just so if you don't want to, like, fling. You know, you know firefighters, <laughs> the reason they carry those picks is they go around the perimeter of the house and they poke holes in it to let the air in more slowly. <laughs> And so sometimes, you know, maybe it's too much to say, I love you, darling. That makes you scared, you know, but you might just like pet your cat or something, do something nice for yourself or have a cup of tea, which is a smaller act of self-kindness that isn't so destabilizing. And then you just kind of work your way slowly. Oh, woman, you're freaking awesome. I could just keep asking you questions all day. Um, but I will ask you my final question, which what is your superpower? If it isn't obvious well, already. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, sometimes I open my talks with a picture of, um, of like Wonder Woman or, or Superman <gasps> and self-compassion. I know because it is a superpower. I mean, and it's, it's like the, you know, the, these magic powers. And the thing is, we have it available to us. It's in our back pocket. We have this incredible resource of kindness, of support, of encouragement, of warmth, of care, of love, and we don't use it. It's like we use it for others, but we don't use it for ourselves. And, it, and it's right here. And the thing is, is, it's quite sad that we don't use it because it is so easy and it's so readily available. Um, the nice thing is, though, is that it's not rocket science to learn self-compassion because you already know how to do it towards someone else. You've already figured out how to be compassionate. It's one of the skills you've learned as a human being. So all you have to do is give yourself permission to use your superpower <laughs> and use it with yourself. And it, it does feel awkward at first. You've got to get over it. It's a learning curve, uh, but it's actually not nearly as hard as you might think it is. Dude, that was one of my favorite answers ever of what your superpower is that so resonated with me and um, where can people find your book and follow you and see all the good stuff you're doing uh probably the easiest thing is just google self-compassion you'll find my web page and on the web page you can test your own self-compassion level i've guided meditations i have practices i have a ton of research if you're a research nerd um you can uh, sign up for my newsletter and um and you can also take trainings like from the center for mindful self-compassion you can take online trainings if you want to learn more so there's a lot of resources available
Amazing. And we'll put the links in the show notes as well. Guys, 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 she's freaking amazing. Go follow her. Go check out her book. If you're not following me, subscribe, follow me at Lisa Billu and click that subscribe button. If this episode brought you value, please, please do like, share and comment. And until next time, use self-compassion and be the hero of your own life. Till next time, guys. Peace out. <laughs>